Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. This is the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments, where I cover such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism, and pretty much everything in between and skirting the edges, including today's episode, which is a special episode. I'm going to devote the entire hour, or hour and a half, however long it takes to get us through this, to Christopher Hitchens, the late, great Christopher Hitchens, who died last week. And I'm going to break up the episode into three different parts. First, of course, we're going to just do a quick overview about Christopher Hitchens. Some of you uh, may, uh, may not know who he is. Many of you may be very familiar, and I'm sure many of you may now be learning a little bit more about him as he did pass away last week. And uh, I'm going to talk about Chris because he, uh, issues as they pertain to secularism and atheism and even uh, the philosophy behind religion and the spread of religion, that's something that interests me greatly. And uh, he was definitely a leader in that particular area, along with such thinkers as Richard Dawkins and Samuel Harris. Uh, so the, basically, so with the three parts to this episode, we'll do over an overview, uh, followed by part two, where I'm just going to briefly go over some of his political views. Uh, as he wasn't just uh, a religious polemicist, uh, there, he did have some... Uh, some interesting uh, leanings in the last 10, 15 years or so that I'll go over. And part three, the last part of the episode, I'll go over his religious views, including uh, discussions about his debate with Tony Blair. And uh, even I'm, uh, I wrote an article one time that uh, ran contrary to his views on Buddhism, for example. So I'll go over that. And uh, I'll end it all off with um, uh, about a 22 or so minute excerpt uh, that Christopher Hitchens had with Frank Churik back in 2008 about whether or not God exists or not. So, without further ado, let's get started. Christopher Hitchens, again, passing away last week of cancer. He was, uh, it's been no secret that he's been dying of cancer over the last uh, little while. He, uh, uh, he kind of, even he admitted himself, he kind of even though it was a, it ran in the family, and his father died of the same thing, uh, he he admitted that he did, he did kind of bring it uh, bring it about, facilitated it just through his smoking and through his uh, his heavy drinking. And um, so yeah, it was not a surprise that he did pass away. But at the same time, it's always uh, upsetting when um, somebody of this kind of caliber and uh, somebody with his his particular talents passes away, and in particular somebody who. I think uh, spoke for a lot of people, and uh, it was I was at a uh, at a party yesterday and speaking with friends about it. And he definitely had this kind of off the cuff attitude, and he often I think would speak before he he would think, and he could kind of rub people the wrong way. 
But in a way, that kind of excited me about him. Uh, I could kind of live vicariously through the way he would snap at people and 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 bite back, and just he he did not suffer fools gladly, and uh, that was definitely something that uh, that kind of at the same time I, 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 it made me kind of um, wince a little bit. But at, at at another at another level, I kind of uh, admired him for that for that that kind of uh, unabashed approach that he had to these sorts of issues. And uh, so just again, uh, very briefly, he did, he started off as a journalist and uh, from, from the UK. And he had, he tended more toward back in the 60s and in the 70s, a kind of uh, left of center leaning. In fact, that's what he was quite renowned for was his, his liberal views. And he definitely um, was interested in, in uh, some uh, some communist issues and Trotsky-ish issues and, uh, and all those sorts of things. But as he got older and as he had more uh, life experiences, he definitely had a shift from uh, from the left. And I, I wouldn't maybe necessarily call it a shift to the right, but certainly when it came to his geopolitical persuasions uh, and, and perhaps to a certain degree his... his uh, sociological persuasions he did develop a, a kind of a, a more firmer stance and he became a bit a bit more uh, dogged in his uh, criticisms of, of religion and in particular uh, Islam and I think uh, 9/11 perhaps had a lot to do with that as did some personal matters in his life and uh, many of you I'm sure are more familiar however with his uh, with his views on religion, and he was a magnificent debater, and I always felt sorry for people who went head-to-head -head against him. He he just did an amazing job uh, picking apart his opponent, picking apart their arguments. He came extraordinarily well-prepared to every debate, and I, I just remember thinking one time, seeing a, a particularly long debate, uh, and a very detailed debate, and I thought to myself, man, he is he is out-bibling this biblical scholar that he was debating. Like He, he absolutely knew his stuff. And apparently he uh, he did have a rather one of the things that he was renowned for was a rather remarkable memory. Uh, he could just scan an article once and it would be immediately embedded into memory. And I think similarly, uh, the the religious studies and biblical studies that uh, that he looked into, he just he he could quote from the Bible and kind of turn it upside down, uh, or, or rather not not so much turn it upside down, but kind of expose it for what it what it really is in terms of the hypocrisy or the inconsistencies and the logical fallacies. Uh, and even bring up some obscure parts of the Bible that are conveniently ignored by the religious. So, yeah, um, going to play some clips now from uh, the BBC. We put together some quick, quick obituaries uh, about uh, Christopher Hitchens. The first is kind of a quick overview, and uh, you'll hear it. In, and in the following segment, uh, they expand a little bit on the interview, and I, I found it particularly interesting because they were talking to him about. Uh, his health and sorts uh, his kind of approach to dying right now. So here are uh, some back-to-back -back segments from the BBC. Christopher Hitchens was a provocative figure, describing himself as an essayist and contrarian. An author of 17 books, he was an atheist and an alcoholic, debating here with Tony Blair on the subject of religion. If I find that I'm alive in any way... At all. Diagnosed with cancer last year, he spoke to Newsnight about his declining health. I'm afraid of a sordid death. I'm afraid that, that I would die in an ugly or squalid way. I mean, cancer can be very pitiless in that. I feel a sense of waste about it um, because I'm not ready. Um, 
um, I feel a sense of betrayal to my family. He began his career in Britain, moving to New York in the 1980s. His death was announced by Vanity Fair, where he worked as a contributing editor. The magazine said, there will never be another like Christopher, a man of ferocious intellect, who was as vibrant on the page as he was at the bar. Those who read him felt they knew him, and those who knew him were profoundly fortunate souls. Very rapidly expanding. Also paying tribute to him, a fellow author said that Christopher Hitchens could throw words up into the sky and they fell down in a marvellous pattern. Helen Fawkes, BBC News. One can't live without fear. It's a question of what is your attitude towards fear. I'm afraid of a sordid death. I'm afraid that, that I would die in an ugly or squalid way. I mean, cancer can be very pitiless in that. Respect. That's a fear of dying. It's yes, not a fear of death. Though. Quite. It was so. If you, I forget now which you asked. What do you? It's a good distinction. What do you think of death? No, of dying. Yes, I feel a sense of waste about it um, because I'm not ready. Um, um, I feel a sense of betrayal to my family, and I like to think even to some of my friends who would miss me. Undone things, unattained objectives. But I, as I said before, I, I hope I'd always have that if I was a hundred. Does it make you angry? No, it makes me um, sober, uh, objective. I think, well, uh, this, is a, this is the best known of our, our disease enemies. Um, I'm one of its many, many, many victims. I'm probably one of the luckier ones in point of being able to have treatment and care. I'd like to prove to other people that it's not the end of everything to be diagnosed with it. In other words, yes, it can be resisted. I think I prefer resistance to battling. I didn't pick this fight, but I'm, now I'm in it. I'd like to give it my best shot. And as I say, what, what I, this means to me is putting myself on the side of those men of medicine and science and reason who are trying to reduce it to something that is understandable, assimilable to reason, and, and uh, that will be brought under control. But the likelihood is that it will kill you. Well, the certainty is that that's what I'll die from. Yeah, some people die with cancer. I might die with it. Um, it will be, unless I have a heart attack, which I could easily have, by the way. I, I'm much more likely now to have a blood clot than I was before. Or a stroke, perhaps. But, I mean, no, it's the proximate cause of my death, and I, I'm both lucky and unlucky to know it in advance and be able to take its measure. So as noted, uh, in and around 10 years ago or so, Hitchens had uh, decided, I guess he had a kind of a, a change of heart, if you will, when it came to uh, some of his uh, uh, political standings, if you will. And uh, he became, uh, actually became um, involved even to a, to a uh, certain degree with the, uh, the Bush administration. And uh, he definitely was... Uh, infamous now, reviled even for his support of the invasion in Iraq, which I kind of find a little bit interesting because people today, 10 years later, are kind of, they're condemning him. And I've seen a number of accounts now where people are reminding everyone that this is the guy who, who, uh, he okayed the, uh, and condoned the invasion in Iraq. But I'll just kind of, you know, just remind everybody that, uh, it's kind of convenient now, particularly with the hindsight we have now that we can condemn those who were perhaps a bit over the top in their uh, their support of that particular uh, involvement. If I remember correctly, 
and certainly um, this is again, I'm sure many of you remember how certain the the, uh, the U.S. government was that there were these so-called weapons of mass destructions in there. 9/11 had just happened. It was a very anxious time, very stressful time, and I do remember there being quite a quite a degree of enthusiasm. Let's be fair; there was quite a degree of enthusiasm once that campaign began. And certainly, Christopher Hitchens was definitely there with uh, with his pom poms in support of uh, the the troops going in to uh, that particular region. And one um, uh, one of the um, elements of his support had to deal with what they were referring to back then as Islamic fascism or uh, Islamo fascism, and uh, basically. Hitchens w- made the claim, along with a lot, a lot of other people there, by the way. He wasn't the only one to talk about this. Um, basically basically saying that uh, these uh, Islamist states, these fundamentalist states, are actually exhibiting uh, what is, for all intents and purposes, a kind of fascism, a kind of uh, twi- late, uh, or rather early, 21st century fascism, although it does go back to uh, the late 70s uh, in Iran with the Ayatollah Khomeini, kind of set a precedent for the setting up of theocracies, which definitely have this kind of totalitarian element to them. I'll get into that in just a bit of a second. But for now, let me play a clip of Christopher Hitchens um, explaining what he means by Islamic fascism and, and basically defending the term and what he means by it. Now, in two articles that he's written, I hope this won't seem solipsistic if I take a moment to reply, uh, Tariq has, um, I haven't yet replied in print, has slandered and taunted me not that I mind that much, for referring to this movement of sadism and fanaticism and bigotry and cruelty as fascistic or as fascist. Here, if I can quote it, is his supposed historical refutation of that usage of mine. Pre-war fascism, he says, was based on both mass and corporate support, which they retained till it became obvious that they were going to be defeated. I'm sorry about the grammar, it's not mine. Well, Islamic fascism... Islamic fascism is based on Saudi finance and supposed mass populist support, and it too will be defeated, whether it recognizes it early or late. It has in common with fascism the following symptoms and characteristics. First, it teaches the embittered and the ill-educated that nothing is their fault. Second, it projects the hatred of the embittered and the ill-educated, it projects their hatred and their resentment onto vulnerable or imagined targets, exclusively civilian. Third, it preaches a fundamental anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Fourth, it relies on elite death squads and killing units. Fifth, it is for sale to high bidders. Sixth, it declares war on all art, all culture, and all literature, fusing state power with cult power and religious power to eradicate knowledge and science and beauty. If you ever wonder what these people have in mind for you, just look what they did to the architecture and the museums and the people of Afghanistan. Seventh, it can only maintain momentum by the continuous export of violence. And eighth, it proposes a society run by the precepts of one mediocre book. And that society would be totalitarian in the strict, literal sense that everything not forbidden is compulsory and everything not compulsory is absolutely forbidden. I rest my case there on fascism. What's interesting is, at least what I find, is how much I am in agreement with Christopher Hitchens on this. And in fact, back in 2006, now, so this is about six years ago or so, I wrote an article entitled, Islamic Fascism? Actually, yes. And 
I'm going to reprise this article now. I, I may have podcasted about this in the, in the past, but so what? Uh, it's topical. It kind of shows, I think, uh, uh, maybe a different perspective uh, on, on the issue. I think uh, one runs the risk of being overly politically correct at times and overly concerned about tolerance. But what's crucial as commentators and, observ and observers and as critics is uh, truth-seeking. And, uh, and, and fair analysis. And I, I do come from a background, an academic background of history and political science. So um, I've, I've always had that, uh, that um, I wouldn't call it, a, I've had that kind of a methodological approach and systemic pro systematic approach to looking at historical events and analyzing it through particular, particular frames, even through kind of um, a macro kind of perspective and taking a step back and asking, okay, what really is this? What is this phenomenon? What is this social trend? And so on. And it was, it was, it is within, with this frame that I looked at the situation in the Middle East and I really had to agree with the, uh, the observation that there is a kind of fascism happening here in this regime, even though we may not necessarily call it as such, although obviously such, uh, such, such commentators, uh, and journalists and thinkers as Christopher Hitchens, they were as they were overt about it, and they were they did not mince words. So this again, this article that I'm about to reprise, it's about six years old. So please forgive how dated it may sound. But again, uh, just going to go over this to reinforce what Christopher Hitchens had said about four years earlier, uh, when the Iraq War had first erupted. Now George W. Bush, he did cause he kind of. Um, reprised the uh, Islamic fascism arc back in 2006 or so. And uh, the, this was done because the neocons back then were looking to establish these this set of ideological parameters which, would, which they were going to continue their propaganda campaign and maintain the American public's high level of agitation and fear. And in the process, Bush, he grossly oversimplified both the nature of the geopolitical situation at the time and the religion of Islam itself. And quite justifiably, there were a number of Muslims who were quite upset with Bush and this rather sweeping and inconsiderate set of remarks. Again, it, kind of it's in, in the way it was said and how it was said that I, I personally kind of thought it could have been done a bit better. But, like I said, there are some underlying truths to the characterization of radical Islam as a fascistic ideology. And again, I'm going to take some great pains here to distinguish between Islamic fundamentalism and the more commonly recognized benign and mainstream variant of Islam. Although, I'm sure if Hitchens were here, he would not say that there is any kind of benign form of Islam or any other religion. Um, the rise of fanatical theocracies in Ahmadinejad's Iran and extremist non-state actors like Al-Qaeda, they've got indelible marks of far-right totalitarian politics. And... I'm not alone on this. Back in 2006, a number of prominent intellectuals, they published a statement in condemnation of what they regarded as the rise of Islamic totalitarianism. And this, uh, this document had a number of thinkers who signed it, and it included Salman Rushdie, the French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, and an exiled Bangladeshi writer, Taslima Nasrin. And in the statement, they wrote that, quote, after having overcome fascism, Nazism, and Stalinism, the world now faces a new global threat, Islamism. We, writers, journalists, intellectuals, call for resistance to religious totalitarianism and for the promotion of freedom, equal opportunity, 
and secular values for all, end quote. So Rushdie and uh, company, they are correct, in my opinion, in their assertion that radical Islam has the characteristics of a totalitarian ideology, but I believe they have actually uh, understated those fascistic elements. Now, many people have the idea that fascism is the monopoly of white supremacist types, and this is simply not the case. At its core, fascism describes the rise of a self-identified group that has grossly exaggerated its historical and societal significance. Now, this, this self-identity typically manifests itself as a sense of superiority or shared destiny. It can en encompass anything from race, nationhood, religion, or even a shared cultural heritage. And uh, there's an, an, an excellent book by historian Alan Castles. It's called Fascism. And he notes that virtually every nation has what it would be referred to as a pre-fascist culture. So for the early 20th century Germans, for example, they identified with their race, the Volk, and their mythical glorious past. And at the same time, many other European nations, they experimented with fascism, including Italy, Spain, England, and even the United States. And again, England was no, uh, no stranger to this. And they, they, again, they had this kind of sense of their exaggerated past and historical past, this kind of greatness that they had. Um, the jolly old England type thing. Now today, this pre-fascist culture, it's quite weak in our liberal societies, but it's rearing its ugly head in some of the Islamic nations. Al-Qaeda, uh, take that for example, it's a, basically it's a paramilitary organization with the stated task of reducing the outside influence of Islamic affairs. And this is very much an example of cultural xenophobia and an overstated sense of, so of social mission. And like the fascists of the 20th century in Europe who feared the specter of Bolshevik globalization, it's the Muslims today who are fear fearing the encroachment of American and Jewish values or Western values. And the result is a far-right, exclusionary, militaristic, and hypersensitive counter-reaction in the form of fascism. Which leads to the next indelible characteristic of fascism, fascism and that is having a common enemy. The racist Nazis, they rallied the nation to deal with what they considered to be the Jewish problem. The Jews were an identifiable enemy who could be blamed for all the problems of the state, and they also targeted the Bolsheviks as well, whose extreme left position polarized the radical, the radicalized, uh, sorry, uh, their extreme left position polarized and radicalized the right even further. Today, the Jews have once again been targeted by far-right groups, and this time in the Middle East, but now they have been joined by the Americans, whose capitalist imperialism and social liberalism has taken the place of communism. Other characteristics of fascism include a charismatic and populist leader, which Iran quite obviously has in President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And what's particularly frightening is that Ahmadinejad clearly believes his own hype. He is not so much a dictator as he is an ideologue. And by hype, I mean ideology, or in this case, theological ideology. And in, and in this sense, Islamic totalitarianism is distinguished from the more secular or socialistic forms of totalitarianism. So you had Marxism, and you had fascism. They had ideologies informed by political, philosophical, and even pseudoscientific texts. Uh, with radical Islam, it's a theocratic framework that draws its authority from religious sources. Now, it's a fine point, but it is worth mentioning. Islamic totalitarianism, while arguably far-right, is an ideological horse of a different color. What it shares with more traditional notions of totalitarianism, however, 
is that the source of authority does not come from one individual or group or individuals, i.e., like authoritarianism, but instead emanates from a monopolistic ideological framework that is enforced as the only true law of the land. So indeed, democracy, due process, other elements of social justice as we know it in liberal democracies, these are absent in countries like Iran and the former Taliban Afghanistan. The goal of these theocracies is to embed religious ideology across the land and to maintain a monopoly on all ideas and institutions. Radical Islam, like any totalitarian ideology, it's enforced by the Alpha and the Omega of personal existence. This, where it got the state, it regulates nearly every aspect of public and private behavior. And in this sense, the revolution that is Islamic totalitarianism, it's comparable to the Stalinization of the Soviet Union and the work of the Nazis in 1930s Germany. The Soviets tried to create a workers' utopia and the new man, while the Nazis worked to ensure racial purity and create a 1,000-year Reich. Islamic fundamentalists, now they were looking to create a heaven on earth, and that's a phenomenon comparable to the quasi-totalitarian and theocratic efforts of the Calvinists way back in 16th century Geneva. As for the Islamic Revolution, one example that will forever stand out in my mind is when the Taliban destroyed Afghanistan's Buddhist statues. And this was an explicitly revolutionary act against those ideas and institutions that potentially rivaled the tenets of the ruling ideology. All revolutions seek to destroy the past, and this one is no different. Another example of zero tolerance toward opposing viewpoints was uh, the row uh, of the caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in the Danish daily newspaper Jylands Posten. Western nations of free expression and of the free press are lost on the theologues. So, while Bush and the neocons wage their obverse Christian crusade against the Islamic fascists, they have, likely unintentionally, revealed a disturbing aspect of extremist politics in the Middle East. And as such, each side continues to antagonize each other. Modern politics migrates further and further into the extreme fringes. So, what's also interesting as part of this, getting back now to Christopher Hitchens, was he, uh, interestingly, this is kind of more anecdotal than anything, he uh, was concerned about the practice of waterboarding. And he, in one experiment, he uh, decided, in, in true form to, a, uh, I guess, a journalist in this sense, he decided uh, to have uh, waterboarding done on himself to test it out to see what it would be like. And uh, I've seen the video of it. Uh, they they strap him down. Uh, they actually, it's kind of creepy the way they, they the way they did it. Even though it was under controlled and safe, they strapped him down on a, a, a kind of a, on a bed. And he and he uh, they put a uh, uh, like a a cover over his face. And uh, what they did though, uh, as part of the, uh, the, uh, the the safety aspect, is they gave him some iron uh, rods to hold in his hands. So that when he had enough, like when he when he had absolutely enough of the waterboarding, he would let go of the bars and they'd fall to the ground. That's how you'd know that that he'd had enough. They also gave him a code word. The code word was red. So whenever he uh, he could just verbally express that he had had enough and they want the, he wants them to stop the experiment, uh, they can do it. So in the video, you see two men and they also kind of have covers over their faces. They uh, they put a towel over his uh, his covered face, and they have a jug of water. 
and they start to pour the jug of water uh, over his face in kind of like intervals. And I'll tell you, uh, Hitch didn't last very long. Uh, apparently, he tried it twice. And uh, each time he bailed uh, after only anywhere between 20 and 30 seconds or so. And, and that's, that's saying a lot because he, he I'm going to play an interview, I'm going to, I'm going to play an interview for you now in which you can hear him remark about this. But one thing you'll pick out, and you probably just know this from what you know about Hitchens himself, is he probably gave it uh, his best try, a real royal try to withstand this as long as possible. And uh, much to his dismay, he could not last more than just, uh, you know, 12, I think it was 12 seconds or 20 seconds, but he'll go over that in the interview. Anyway, so here is the man himself explaining and describing what it's like to be waterboarded. And Christopher Hitchens joins us now from California. What did it feel like? Well, the, the, the big lie about it is, you read all the time in the press, that it simulates the feeling of drowning. It doesn't simulate it at all. You are, in fact, being drowned. Uh, although, albeit slowly under controlled conditions, and that's what it feels like. Uh, uh, the, therefore, the the overriding instinct of everything in you, mentally and physically, is to fight back against this drown, smother, gag, reflex, and, uh, and to do anything it would take to stop it. How long did you last, and how long did it feel you had lasted? Uh, very good question. Um, just in reverse order, it felt a lot longer than it was. I, I, the first time, I, I think I managed about 12 seconds. Now, the CIA say that 30 seconds is fairly creditable. Um, I thought I should try again after that. I felt a bit, a bit British about it, if you like. I thought I should see if I could withstand it a bit longer. I think I got to about 19 to 20 the second go-round. But it felt much um, longer than that. Oh, it felt a great deal longer than that, yes. And I also, I was quite convinced that I had shouted the, the code red word to make them stop, but I, I hadn't um, at all done that. All I, all I knew how to do was to activate the dead man's handle to drop the, um, to drop the metal bars that told them that was enough. The critical question... What it, would be like if one, what it would be like if one wasn't able to do that, I really, really don't like to think. The critical question here is your judgment. Is this torture... What I say in my Vanity Fair piece is I, I, I plagiarise from Abraham Lincoln about slavery who said, if, if that's not wrong, then nothing is wrong. I say about this, if this doesn't count as torture, then nothing does. Uh, up until now, the United States has always insisted that if any other power or gang or group does it to an American, that they'll seek the death penalty for that person, as they did in Japan um, after the Second World War. Um, they prosecuted their own forces for doing it um, in Vietnam without authorization. Um, Thus, I think the very least you can say is that to have it authorized and uh, practiced with the official uh, permission is crossing a very dangerous line. The argument is, of course, needs must. Yes, but with needs must, then what wouldn't you justify? If you really have, say, the famous ticking bomb scenario, then why not bring out the thumbscrews? They'd be even quicker. Or the blowtorch. That would, that would work. You're in a hurry, after all. What won't you do? The question is, does, does that argument ever work? And the, um, the answer, well, I think it's twofold. One is, we've never actually had a case of a ticking bomb where you, you know you've got the right person and you know he knows everything you want him to know. And uh, contrarywise, so to say, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, the, the um, most celebrated victim of this process, in American hands at any rate, is said to have given up a lot of junk information in, in um, response to being waterboarding, because people will, I can now see why, uh, say anything. In a word, what should happen with the practice? 
it should be discontinued. So the long and the short of this experiment, for Hitchens anyways, was that uh, the, the charge that waterboarding was not torture, he pretty much dismissed it after that. He said, no, it's pretty much, it's torture. And uh, that, uh, that I thought was pretty courageous of him to do that. I'm not sure I would have the courage to, to try something like that. Uh, the, the feeling of drowning is not something I would, I'm particularly fond of. And, uh, but anyways, uh, it, it, I brought this kind of into the conversation just to show what an interesting character Christopher Hitchens was. And that basically he, uh, as a truth seeker, would just go to where uh, he felt he needed to go and to find exactly that, the truth, and expose things for what they really are. Now, shifting gears from his political views to his religious views, which arguably may be what he's really renowned for. I think maybe the first half of his life he was known more for his political views, uh, but certainly in the back half, definitely uh, his vociferous attacks on religion. And I think one thinks about Richard Dawkins, for example, or Samuel Harris, and, re- and, and kind of appreciating their particular approach to uh, the critiques of religion and religiosity. But I think none hold a candle to the uh, the power, and even even to a certain degree, a kind of calm hatred and disgust with religious institutions and religious ideas and how it has worked to perpetuate itself into society. And he did say at one time that religion, uh, or that rather. 
the, uh, the one of the goals of, of a secular society, of a liberal society, is to domesticate religion. And he called it an unceasing chore of civilization. And back in uh, 2010, so not too long ago, he uh, wrote in Slate magazine, and uh, the article was entitled, Free Exercise of Religion? No thanks. And uh, he asked himself this question, am I in favor of the untrammeled, quote, free exercise of religion, end quote? And obviously Hitchens' answer is no. So I'm going to pick a little bit from this article just to give you an idea as to where he's coming from on this. Now Hitchens, he tasked a number of religions, uh, so he takes to task a number of religions for what he saw as their moral inconsistencies and hypocrisies. And he, again, he, he pretty much, he left no, no religion untouched. And he wrote that the Church of Scientology, the Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, and the Ku Klux Klan, these are all faith-based organizations, and they're all entitled to the protections of the First Amendment. But they're also subject to a complex of statutes governing tax exemption, fraud, racism, and violence to the point where free exercise in the third case has, by means of federal law enforcement and stern public disapproval, been reduced to a vestige of its former self. And... Hitchens concludes in this article, quote, Reactions from even moderate Muslims to criticism are not uniformly reassuring. Some of what people are saying in this mosque controversy is very similar to what the German media was saying about Jews in the 1920s and 1930s. Imam Abdullah Antepli, Muslim chaplain at Duke University, told the New York Times, Yes, we all recall the Jewish suicide bombers of that period, as we recall the Jewish yells for holy war the Jewish demands for the veiling of women and the stoning of homosexuals and the Jewish burning of newspapers that published cartoons they did not like. What is needed from the supporters of this very confident faith is more self-criticism and less self-pity and self-righteousness. Those who wish that there would be no mosques in America have already lost the argument. Globalization, no less than the promise of American liberty, mandates that the United States will have a Muslim population of some size. The only question, then, is what kind, or rather kinds of Islam, it will follow. There's an excellent chance of a healthy, pluralist outcome. But it's very unlikely that this can happen unless, as with their predecessors on these shores, Muslims are compelled to abandon certain presumptions that are exclusive to themselves. The taming and domestication of religion is one of the unceasing chores of civilization. Those who pretend that we can skip this stage in the present case are deluding themselves and asking for trouble, not just in the future, but in the immediate present. End quote. And again, that's from Hitchens' article, Free Exercise of Religion, and no thanks. Now, last year, um, Hitchens came to Toronto to debate Tony Blair. I unfortunately could not attend this talk, but I did have friends attend it, and uh, thankfully there's been, uh, they recorded it, and there's uh, some recordings online. So what the debate was, was a, it was a religious de- debate with Tony Blair, uh, Tony Blair being a, um, a Roman Catholic, former Prime Minister of England. He, the, uh, the motion that was put forward, or the argument that they were uh, debating over was that whether or not religion was a force for good. And essentially, Hitchens countered that religion required that we are created sick and then ordered to be well. So I'm going to play for you now a clip from that debate, and you can hear the master at work. Two significant figures and an issue as weighty as they come. As a convert to Catholicism, Tony Blair vigorously defended the motion, but sounded defensive. It is undoubtedly true that people commit 
horrific acts of evil in the name of religion. It is also undoubtedly true that people do acts of extraordinary common good inspired by religion. First, with your opening Christopher statement. Hitchens may be a very sick man, but his intellectual fire still burns fiercely. Once you assume a creator and a plan, it makes us objects in a cruel experiment whereby we are created sick and commanded to be well. I'll repeat that. Created sick and then ordered to be well. And over us to supervise this is installed a celestial dictatorship, a kind of divine North Korea. <laughs> Anyone expecting rumbles of thunder might have been disappointed. The two men showed each other plenty of respect. And nor was this confession time. Mr Blair said he never put religion before policy. So, as I used to say to people, you know, you don't go into church and, and look heavenward and say to God, right, next year, the minimum wage. Is it £6.50 or £7? <laughs> Unfortunately, he doesn't tell you the answer. Uh, Mr Blair admitted it was difficult to explain the relevance of Scripture in the modern world. Mr Hitchens said he preferred other mysteries. We are somewhat imperfectly evolved primates on a very small planet in a very unimportant suburb of the of a solar system that is itself a negligible part of a very rapidly expanding and blowing apart uh, cosmic phenomenon. <clears throat> These conclusions to me are a great deal more awe-inspiring than what's contained in any burning bush. The audience seemed more impressed and perhaps more entertained by Mr Hitchens. In a vote afterwards, the motion was defeated by a margin of two to one. Paul Adams, BBC News, Toronto. Now, I never... I've not always agreed with everything Hitchens had said, whether it be some of his political views or even his religious views. And in particular, um, I wasn't too fond of some of his opinions when it came to Buddhism. As many of you know, I, I'm uh, very much interested in secular Buddhism, and I consider myself to be a, a practitioner. It's something that I, uh, I think about on a daily basis and, and I work towards. Uh, I've, I've never really been comfortable with the idea of characterizing uh, Buddhism as religion, but clearly uh, it, it is regarded as that. And I mean, it's, so, it's been institutionalized to the degree where one can't help but give it uh, that baggage. Now, back in um, 2007, Christopher Hitchens... Uh, released his book, God is Not Great. And in the book, he kind of throws some uh, slings at Buddhism. So I'm going to quote from his book, God is Not Great. Quote, Those who become bored by conventional Bible religions and seek enlightenment by way of the disillusion of their own critical faculties into nirvana in any form had better take a warning. They may think they are leaving the realm of despised materialism, but they are still being asked to put their reason to sleep and to discard their minds along with their sandals, end quote. Now, Hitchens essentially believes that the West has been duped by what he regards as just another religion filled with all the usual trappings. He regarded Buddhism as a faith that despises the mind and the free individual, and he argued that it preaches submission and resignation, and that its practitioners come to regard life as a rather poor and transient thing. So it's some pretty harsh stuff. He, did, he, never, he doesn't mince words when it comes to... Uh, uh, this stuff, and certainly he slammed into Buddhism like he would Roman Catholicism or Islam or anything. 
Now, that's all fine and well, except, like I mentioned, I don't really think that Buddhism isn't just like any other religion. So what do I mean by that? What, what, what is Buddhism then? Well, yes, it has the characteristics of religion, but it offers much more than that. Firstly, it's an epistemological philosophy and an intrapersonal approach to perception, self-awareness, and self-regulation. It's also an aesthetic. It's a non-anthropocentric ethical viewpoint that places an emphasis on meaningful, compassionate, and genuine relationships. It's a kind of humanism. It encourages meditation and a mindful approach to living. It's a worldview and a methodology that promotes skepticism, rationality, empiricism, and even nonconformity. It's the practical acknowledgement of the unavoidable perceptual subjectivity that is part of the human condition. It is the recognition that the mind matters and that conscious awareness can and should be optimized. Now, Buddhists believe that by paying close attention to moment-to-moment conscious experience, it's possible to move beyond the sense of self in favor of a new state of personal well-being. And if this can be incorporated within the framework of formal scientific investigation, well, that's all the better. And all this without the usual baggage and expectations of most religions, namely belief in God, the soul, judgment, and the afterlife. It doesn't promote any fixed dogma, nor does the practice result in feelings of guilt or shame. There are no sins to be committed in Buddhism, nor are there highly polarized notions of right and wrong. Practitioners simply do the best they can to mete out as little suffering into the world as is possible. But like all big ideas, Buddhism can be prone to abuse and misunderstanding, and as Hitchens has correctly noted, even tribalistic tendencies. So let's take institutionalized Buddhism, for example. Indeed, a big part of Hitchens' grief with Buddhism and its questionable history and how it has become highly ritualized and filled with otherworldly beliefs is valid. He stated that, quote, Buddhism can be as hysterical and sanguinary as any other system that relies on faith and tribe, end quote. Hitchens, he rallied against the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan Buddhists. He condemned the Burmese, Burmese dictatorship as a Buddhist one, uh, which seems a suspicious claim to make these days, seeing as thousands of monks have recently stood up against the regime. But anyways, uh, Hitchens dips deep into history and blames Buddhism for a number of misguided practices and atrocities. Now, while I agree that Buddhism has been used in this way, and that blood has been shed in its name countless number of times, I can't agree that Buddhism is the cause of these things. What Hitchens is describing is the failure of human nature and institutions, it's the, the perils of insular groupthink and politics itself. It's the same phenomenon that has led to the bastardization of the teachings of Jesus and the rise of such monolithic institutions as the Catholic Church, along with its sordid history of conquest and persecution. Consequently, Hitchens' ire should be directed at the phenomenon of tribalism and not religion itself. So, what about the question of Buddhist faith? Hitchens does make the claim that Buddhists rely on faith. Undoubtedly, beliefs in reincarnation, karma, and transcendence runs deep within various Buddhist strains. It's currently a great point of contention among Buddhist scholars, some of whom, like the secular Buddhist Stephen Batchelor, contend that these precepts are unnecessary and that when it comes to metaphysics, Buddhists should actually be agnostic. More traditional Buddhists, on the other hand, argue that belief in rebirth is absolutely necessary to the practice. And interestingly, the Dalai Lama himself, who is a believer in reincarnation, maintains that science should take precedence over these sorts of notions. And the Dalai Lama once said, quote, My confidence in venturing into science lies in my basic belief that, as in science, so in Buddhism. 
Understanding the nature of reality is pursued by means of critical investigation. If scientific analysis were con conclusively to demonstrate certain claims in Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon those claims, end quote. Now, that's easier said than done, of course. Deeply embedded and ritualized religions have an incredibly hard time adapting to change, including Buddhism. As for the accusation that all Buddhists rely on faith, that's clearly a generalization, and most Buddhists, I would say, likely take nothing on mere faith alone. Then there's the issue of alternative perception. Hitchens, he also critiqued the aims of the Buddhist practice itself, and he made a number of suspicious claims that Buddhists despise the mind and the free individual, that Buddhism teaches submission and resignation, and that practitioners regard life as a fleeting thing full of suffering. He contends that Buddhists require a surrendering of the mind. Now, I kind of look at that as mostly nonsense. These claims have been countered elsewhere, so I'm not going to replicate them here, but there are a pair of issues that I wish to address. First, Hitchin appears to be a bit confused. He seems to be conflating transcendental meditation or something like that with the more traditional practice of vipassana meditation and its focus on mindful awareness. There's nothing escapist or transcendent about this practice. Rather, it's very much about focusing on the here and now and correcting the processes of a conditioned mind. Second, Hitchens complains that Buddhists favor subjectivity over objectivity. Quote, You're supposed to be the subjective judge of what you're experiencing, are you not? He asks. Hitchens, being the uber-materialist that he was, he was concerned that Buddhists don't believe that anything can be accepted at objective face value, that Buddhists merely see the existence their existence as some sort of grand illusion. Hitchens's special claim into the true nature of reality aside, he is a bit off course here, and his concern is exaggerated. Buddhists do not deny the presence of the material world or the value of objectivity, far from. What they assert, though, is that the universe will always be perceived through the lens of an observer, and that our comprehension of reality must always take this into account. The only way that the world can be observed is subjectively. There can be no such thing as a truly objective observer. We can and should strive towards an objective frame, but the world will always be perceived by an observer, which is, by definition, a subject. Now, what irks me most about Hitchens's critique of Buddhism was the sense I got that what he's really complaining about are personal quests for spirituality. In fact, some of his arguments are so pithy, like making fun of Buddhist koans and Steven Seagal, that I'm inclined to think that he's slamming into Buddhism just for the sake of it, because it's just another religion on his hate list. But Hitchens, I don't think he did his homework when it came to his critique of Buddhism, and it shows. Moreover, his limited acceptance as to what kind of worldview and perceptual lens is acceptable is extremely limited and narrow-minded. Ultimately, there's nothing wrong with spirituality, or if you hate that word, a sense of existential awareness. In fact, I wish more people would consider the philosophic implications of existence and look deeper within themselves. There's far too much daydreaming going on today with people living way outside their heads. And on this issue of spirituality... I will give Sam Harris the last word. Quote, There is clearly a sacred dimension to our existence, and coming to terms with it could well be the highest purpose of human life. It must be possible to bring reason, spirituality, and ethics together in our thinking about the world. This would be the beginning of a rational approach to our deepest personal concerns. It would also be the end of faith. End quote.
when Christopher Hitchens was dying of cancer, he asked his fans not to pray for him. And uh, he asked that people refrain from what he called, uh, or what he didn't uh, refrain from troubling deaf heaven, as he said it, over his plight. And uh, he uh, basically appealed to both his fans, but particularly his religious fans, not that I'm sure he had too many of them, um, but not to kind of trouble themselves and make these kind of bootless cries for his recovery. Back in October, so that's a couple of months ago, he, um, he wrote in Vanity Fair, which was his magazine where he worked, he, uh, he was uh, dying of uh, esophageal cancer and that he was undergoing chemotherapy. And he has been in, he was inundated back then with uh, thousands of offers of prayers for his health and salvation from a number of religious persuasions. And uh, there's a quote uh, in a uh, Guardian article. Devotional websites consecrated special space to the question, said Hitchens. September 20th has been designated Everybody Pray for Hitchens Day and even found a website inviting people to put money on whether he will renounce his atheism and embrace religion by a certain date or continue to affirm unbelief and take the hellish consequences. Now, I'm somewhat grateful to Christopher Hitchens for kind of taking one for the team here. That I think it was a rather naive uh, set of uh, expectations, I think, perhaps from some of the religious folks, to think that once he became terminally ill, that he would suddenly change his tune and become religious or accept uh, religious traditions and practices. I, and I, th I think anyone who knew... Uh, Christopher Richens, or at least knew what his work was all about, that that was going to be an impossibility. And uh, there's a great quote from Hitchens to this regard. He says, quote, What if I pulled through and the pious faction contentedly claimed that their prayers had been answered? That would somehow be irritating. I don't mean to be churlish about any kind of intentions, but when September 20 comes, please do not trouble deaf heaven with your bootless cries, unless, of course, it makes you feel better. End quote. So, after advocating for atheism in his 2007 book, God is Not Grace, God is Not Great, The Case Against Religions, Hitchens, he also pointed out that if he abandoned the principles that he held throughout his life in the hopes of gaining favor at the last minute, it would be something of a rather hucksterish choice that uh, the God who would reward cowardice and dishonesty and punish irreconciled doubt, and that's among the many gods in which whom I do not believe, and that's what he wrote. So, um, Hitchens was um, also the target of much ire um, by the religious who said that, uh, that he was actually kind of deserved this. So again, pulling from this Guardian article, uh, there were some rather less uh, generous responses. And there's one here from uh, one website that said, quote, Who else feels Christopher Hitchens getting terminal throat cancer was God's revenge for him using his voice to blaspheme him? He is going to writhe in agony and pain and wither away to nothing and then die a horrible, agonizing death. And then comes the real fun when he's sent to hellfire forever to be tortured and set afire. And Hitchens actually responded to this. He said, well, okay, well, why not a thunderbolt for yours truly or something similarly awe-inspiring? The vengeful deity has sadly depleted arsenal of all I can think of is exactly the cancer that my age and former lifestyle would suggest that I got. And that's, uh, he wrote that, he also musing on the question of why, if God awards the appropriate cancers, infants contract leukemia and devout people die young and in pain, while guys like Bertrand Russell and Voltaire, by contrast, remain spry until the end, 
as many psychopathic criminals and tyrants have also done. Again, this is so typical of Hitchens, where he just he's so is so able to nail it, so able to kind of expose the hypocrisy and the inconsistencies and the and the this the 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 the, the, the poor reasoning that is done by so many in the in the religious camps. And he reassured, he assured his Christian correspondent that his so far uncancerous throat is not all the only organ with which I have blasphemed. And even if my voice goes before I do, I shall continue to write polemics against religious delusions, at least until it's hello darkness, my old friend. In which case, why not cancer of the brain? As a terrified, half-aware imbecile, I might even scream for a priest at the close of business, though I hereby state, while I am still lucid, that the entity thus humiliating itself would not, in fact, be me. Bear this in mind in case of any later rumors or fabrications. End quote from Christopher Hitchens. And I am now going to finish the episode with, uh, as promised, on the subject of whether or not God exists. Hitchens debating Frank Turek back in 2008. The question was whether or not God does exist. And this was Christopher Hitchens' portion of the debate. And at this point, I'm just going to let the show run out with that particular segment. So I bid you all farewell. I hope you enjoyed this episode, reminiscing on the life led by a rather remarkable person, whether you loved him or hated him or were ambivalent, it didn't matter. You could not ignore him, Christopher Hitchens. And uh, I think he, I think the world will be a much, a much let, less richer and vibrant place without him. Until next week, everybody have a good time and uh, look for my next podcast in about a week or so. And here we are, uh, Christopher Hitchens debating on whether or not God exists. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Uh, thank you, Dr. Torek, for that very spirited opening to the evening. I should say first, it's a great honor to be in the capital of the great state of Virginia. Um, I'm, a, in a small way, a biographer of uh, Thomas Jefferson, and his uh, memorial, as you know, omitted the mention of his presidencies and vice presidencies and preferred to focus on his work at the university and his authorship of the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom, which is the embryo and basis of the First Amendment to our Constitution, which makes this the only country in the world that has ever decided that God and constitutional matters should be separated. And it's in defense partly of that civilizational impulse uh, that I rise this evening uh, to satirize the idea that we're here by somebody else's permission and owe that person an explanation, which is what it is to be a theist, if not a deist at any rate. Um, I almost never watch television, and I'm, I'm, I'm usually glad that I don't, but now I'm glad that I sometimes I'm forced by my daughter to watch Family Guy. <laughs> because you may possibly have seen the moment when the chubby father comes down in the morning and looks at his cereal in the bowl, accepting your, some, one of your more sophisticated challenges, sir. Um, and he says, look at this, it says, woo, 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 woo. And his daughter says, those are Cheerios, Dan. <laughs> but I accept the ontological challenge. And I accept it in this way. The answer to the question which with, with which we confront ourselves tonight, or are confronted if you prefer, does God exist, 
is to me, yes, it does. It must do. It must do because it is so real to those who do believe in it. There are people of whom it may be said that for them, God does exist. I've become perfectly persuaded of this by now. There is no form of persuasion that would make me assent to this proposition. Some of us are born. We are born too. Uh, in answer to Blaise Pascal's own problem, the one that made him write his pensée and address them to those who are so made that they cannot believe. Those of us to whom almost everything that Dr. Troyep just said would be the mere equivalent of white noise. I suppose it's my job this evening to explain ontologically how that is the case. Perhaps I'll do it by force of example. Recently, very recently, in fact, uh, as little uh, uh, ago in time as last year, the Vatican announced that limbo, the destination of the un unbaptized child soul, no longer exists. There is no such place. Um, St. Augustine was in error, it appears, in sending so many children, at least the souls of so many unbaptized children, to this destination for so long. Among the um, comments that I heard about this, among the mildest, actually, was that of a woman raised in the Catholic faith, whose child had died before baptism could take place, who had for many years believed that that's where her unbaptized child had gone. And she said, they can't tell me that place doesn't exist. It's been as real to me as anything possibly could be for so long. They've no right to tell me now that this no longer exists. Ontologically, limbo exists for those who believe in it just as God does. I'm not here to deny that. It's only a few decades now since the rival church, Church of Rome, uh, the Church of England announced that really no one actually goes to hell. It could be that after you die, you're forbidden God's grace. But there's no real place of eternal, unending, infinite torture and torment with which those who claimed the grace of God and the redemption of Jesus made a living for so many years. And how do they make their living? By lying to children. Think of it. Hundreds and hundreds of years of people proudly earning their keep by lying to children and terrifying them and saying that because they could do that, they were morally superior to us. Reason, common sense, decency, ordinary decency, rebels against this kind of mind-forged manacle, however charmingly or humorously it's expressed. But hell exists in the minds of several people I've spoken to just today, on this campus in the, in the intervals of, uh, of other conversations. Uh, for them, it's real, and I don't say that it's not. What I want to show is that it can, if it does exist, nonetheless be abolished, like many other mind-forged manacles and man-made tyrannies that confront us. And in fact, that this belief in a supreme and unalterable tyranny is the oldest enemy of our species, the oldest enemy of our intellectual freedom and our moral autonomy, and must be met, and must be challenged, and must be overthrown. I want to argue for nothing less than that. It's actually rather wonderful, isn't it, the uh, religious authorities who used to say they were infallible. Say, just take the last pope, just the last. I know I'm not talking with the Catholic apologist this evening, but nonetheless, the church, when people say the church, they know which one they mean. They mean the one in Rome. The one where when Stephen Hawking was invited and was asked at the conference on the church and science, is there anything he'd like to see in Rome while he was there? He said he'd like to see the records of the trial of Galileo. Um, 
don't please be invoking Mr. Hawking, by the way, as if he was a deist. Um, the last pope, just in the last decade of his tenure, apologized. He said, we were wrong about the Jewish question. We probably shouldn't have said for so long the Jews were responsible for the murder of Christ. We were probably wrong in forced conversion of the peoples of the, the Indies, as they were thought of, the, the Isthmus and the southern cone of our hemisphere. We were certainly wrong. We owe an apology to the Muslims for the atrocities of the Crusades. We owe an apology to the Eastern Orthodox churches uh, for the incredible butchery to which they, our fellow Christians, were subjected by us, the Roman Catholic Church. And we probably owe an apology to the Protestants for saying and so many awful things about them and torturing and burning and killing them too. So having now said we were completely wrong and completely cruel and completely sadistic and completely violent and retarded human civilization for that many centuries in that many countries and continents, we're quit. And now we can go back to being infallible all over again. There are, the, there are people who on faith will accept being spoken to in that tone of voice and in that way. But I, ladies and gentlemen, am not one of them. And I don't think there's any form of persuasion that should allow you to be spoken to as if you were serfs or slaves either. Proceeding with the ontology with which I began, the Aquinas point, that if, if you can conceive of something, whether it's a ghost, uh, a phantasm, uh, or a deity, if you can conceive of something, it is in some sense real if it's real in your mind. Uh, and showing with the obvious fallacy that has always attended that, is it nonetheless possible for an atheist to say, a proclaimed atheist to say, as I do, um, proclaim myself to be, that God positively can be said not to exist? No. It's a very common misunderstanding about my fraternity sorority. I'll just take a moment to clear it up. The atheist says, no persuasive argument for the existence of God has ever been advanced or adduced without convincing rebuttal, that no argument in favour stands or has been found to stand the test of argument and evidence. We cannot say that we know that there could be no such entity. Among other things, we are too reverent of the extraordinary time of discovery, <coughs> innovation, pushing back of the frontiers of knowledge and, and understanding that's taken place just in our own time to make any such remark. But by saying this, we say, I think, quite a lot. There is no valid or coherent or consistent argument that would not work if it comes to that for the existence of any god. Now I noticed it was a, by a slight work of illusion, a bit of uh, tap dancing there, that Dr. Turret went from uh, being a deist to a theist and then from being a theist to a Christian. Now I know he does not believe in the existence of the sun god Ra. I'm practically certain he doesn't believe in the existence of Zeus. If you'll pick up a copy of my Portable Atheist, a selection of the finest writings by non-believers uh, down the years, and just turn to the three pages where Mencken, H.L. Mencken, lists the easiest to name 3,000 gods that used to be worshipped and that no longer are held to exist by anybody, uh, you'll spare me the trouble of reading them out. Um, no, he thinks he doesn't just know, Dr. Turek, that there is a God. He knows which one is the right one from a potentially infinite list. Actually, from a list that's as long as the number of people there are or have ever been in the human species. Because if you ever argue with a theist or a deist, as I do every day, you'll find they all believe in a God of their very own. Indeed, they often say a personal God. 
Indeed, they often say a personal savior. So out of, out of what are we reifying a concept that applies to all of us? Out of nothing but wish thinking and nonsense and fear and ignorance and above all, and I'm not quitting on this point, servility. Everyone in this room is an atheist. Everyone can name a God in which they do not believe. Let them advance the case that the one in which they believe is the superior one. Let Dr. Torek be the first person I've ever met to do that convincingly this evening, and I will show him due respect. I don't think the task can actually be undertaken. Now, the same tap dancing hopes you will not notice that deism and theism are two quite different things. The deist argument says that there is so much order apparent in nature and in the cosmos and in the universe that it might be unwise to assume that such order has no one interested in ordering or designing it. That, that, that assumption might be, an un, might be an unsafe one. The philosopher Paley in his uh, natural theology said design implies a designer. He came up with the very famous image of the watch. If you come across the watch, if you're a primitive tribes person in the Sahara, you may not know what it's for, but you know that it's not a rock or a vegetable. You know it has a purpose, and someone made it that way. Um, until quite recently, that was the default position of most intelligent people, including Mr. Jefferson, who, despite his intermittent atheism, in my judgment, was a theist. I'm so sorry, was a deist, was a deist. He would debate with, um, among the many skills he had, was a very advanced uh, level of paleontology. He would debate with the greatest paleontologist of his time, the Count de Buffon. How, how comes it, how can it be, that we find seashells so high on the mountains of Virginia? How can this be? Not even the most intelligent people of that day, and it's very recent, it's an instant in historical time, had any idea how that could be. There isn't anyone in this room who wasn't educated and brought up knowing exactly how that is. It's just a shame that uh, Jefferson and many other intelligent and humane and uh, well-educated literate people just couldn't see that far. He wasn't to know that Darwin was born in his day, on the same day, actually in 1809, as Abraham Lincoln, the very same day, the two great emancipators, Darwin being, in my judgment, the greater of the two. Now we know... We know this proposition to be true, the proposition that was ridiculed so, uh, so uh, pathetically, I have to say, I thought, by Dr. Torek. There is no explanation for the origins of our species, for the origins of our cosmos, for the origins of our globe itself. There is not one explanation left which requires the existence of a deus ex machina. In every case, we have a better or sufficient explanation. I think that assertion of mine will stand any challenge this evening. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some more of them. Of course, Darwin used creationist images. He actually set out uh, to um, vindicate uh, Paley's theology. He thought he could do it by his study, taxonomical study of nature. Um, Einstein used uh, God images when he spoke uh, of the extraordinary majesty of the cosmos. It's, it's, it's in us. It's in our vocabulary. It's hardwired in us, you might almost say, to use images of awe-inspiring, um, godly, uh, Mozartian, you might, you might say, or even Shakespearean images when talking about these things. But when we come down to the actual analysis of them, we find that we don't need the prime mover at all, and that most of the prime mover explanations, if not all of them, have been positively 
misleading. So that the deist may propose a designer, and I may not be able to show you convincingly that there could be no such person, but the theist has all their work still ahead of them. From this designer, how do we get to the designer who answers prayers? Did you hear a thing? I mean, just a phrase, even an implication, even a suggestion from anything my opponent said, that you could, by an argument from design, prove answered prayers, or prove that someone born of a virgin was therefore the son of a god, or could prove that resurrections occur, and that by uh, people being tortured to death thousands of years ago, we are now redeemed, that we are vicariously forgiven our own offenses by human sacrifice? How does deism help you to that? It doesn't. It quite simply doesn't and cannot. And the attempt to build from one to the other is a conjuring trick of a very vulgar, I think, kind. We live in the childhood of our species, so when Stephen Hawking says that if we could understand the event horizon that surrounds the black hole, we would, in some sense, know the mind of God, he proves that our vocabulary is still that of our infancy. He makes no concession to the idea of a theist or theocratic uh, dispensation. I'd better ask now how I'm doing for time. Good. I'm not sure I'm going to need all that. Um, but I'd like to try and reply and fight on my feet when I can. And I made some notes about, about what uh, Dr. Torek had said, and I feel that uh, they were challenges to me that I would be um, ignoble if I didn't uh, respond to. Um, the first, and I thought the most, frankly, the most egregious, was this. I find it extraordinary that it can be said on a university campus in this year of grace that, uh, that without God, humans are capable of doing anything. That there is no moral restraint upon us if we don't concur in the idea that we are the property and uh, creation of the Supreme Being. Uh, I'm making the assumption that all of you check in every now and then with some kind of news outlet and have a view of what's going on in the rest of the world. Isn't it as plain as could be that those who commit the most callous, the most cruel, the most brutal, the most indiscriminate atrocities of all, do so precisely because they believe they have divine permission? Shall I answer my own question? Shall I insult you? by adding more. Who can't think of an example of this kind? Let me put the question in another form that I've put in now. Uh, every forum from YouTube to C-SPAN to the wireless to the print to the radio to the television and in, in, innumerable forums to those who say that without God there can be no morality. You are to ask yourself two questions. You are to name a moral action undertaken or a moral and ethical statement made by a believer I dare say you can do it. You are then to say that you can not imagine a non-believer making this moral statement or undertaking this moral action. Can you think, can you now think, can any of you think, you have, don't have to answer now, you have all night, and, and you have my email. <laughs> and I've done this with everyone from the Archbishop of Canterbury to even lower people. Um, <laughs> You name me the ethical and moral actual statement that a believer can make and an unbeliever cannot, and there's a prize. I'll tell you that about that later. Now there's a second question. Think of something wicked that only a believer would be likely to do. 
or something wicked that only a believer would be likely to say. You've already thought of it. The suicide bombing community is entirely religious. The genital mutilation community is entirely religious. I wouldn't say that the child abuse community is entirely religious. I wouldn't. But it's bidding to be entirely religious. <laughs> it operates on the old Latin slogan, no child's behind left. <laughs> how dare anybody, how dare anyone who speaks for religion uh, say of us, the secular and the non-believers, that we are the immoral ones. It is itself a wicked thing to say. Itself an absolutely indefensible thing to say. No. The decapitation on the bus is going to be done by someone who thinks God is telling him to do it. Smerdyakov is actually the stupidest character in Dostoevsky's novel. Uh, he's the one who makes this proposition. Everyone has to understand. Everyone has to understand that it is those who feel that the divine is prompting them, who feel they're permitted anything and everything. And it is those who are the leading, most salient, most violent, most vicious opponents of the values and civilization that Thomas Jefferson uh, stood for and promulgated. Uh, just on the question of fine-tuning, I have a number of responses. We have to postpone some of the, 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 the naturalistic questions for, for later, when I know they'll come up again. Um, you mentioned Edwin Hubble and the way that he saw the red light shift and uh, saw that the universe was not just expanding, but, the, the, but expanding very fast, away from itself, that the Big Bang had not stopped. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, great physicist, probably the next Nobel Prize winner, has uh, noticed that most of people's assumption was wrong, that though this expansion was taking place, it was thought, the rate of speed of the expansion must surely be declining. People still think in Newtonian terms in this way. No, says Krauss, he's pointed it out and now it's agreed by all. No, the Hubble rate of red light shift is increasing. The universe is dissipating itself at high speed and the speed is getting greater. What does this mean? Well, it answers the question of why is there something instead of nothing? Because now we have something. We're all here because there's something. And nothing is coming right for us. Very soon... A physicist wouldn't be able to tell the Big Bang had ever taken place. So far sprung apart will the whole system be. And meanwhile, look in the sky at night and you can see the Andromeda galaxy headed straight for ours on a direct collision course. Who designed that? Who made it certain that every other planet in our solar system is either too hot or too cold to support life, as is most of our own planet? And that in just one tiny, irrelevant solar system already condemned to heat death and implosion. Some design, wouldn't you say? But these are just the paltering minor objections that I have to the theistic worldview. The main one is the one with which I began. Religion, theism, not deism, theism I, un I underline. Theism says that all our manifold problems, what is the good? How shall we live it? How shall we know it? How to explain suffering? How to, how to confront the possibility of our own perhaps molecular irrelevance. All these questions uh, that must disturb and detain us all can be solved by referring them upward to a totalitarian judgment, to an absolutist monarch. The other thing that the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom was supposed to uh, rebut, repudiate. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, I promise you, 30 seconds. Uh, there is no totalitarian solution to these problems. There is no big brother in the sky. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody 
who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, waking and sleeping, who knows our thoughts, who can convict us of thought crime, who can do thought crime just for what we think, uh, who can judge us while we sleep for things that might occur to us in our dreams, who can create us sick, as apparently we are, and then order us on pain of eternal torture to be well again. To demand this, to wish this to be true, is to wish to live as an abject slave. It is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing, in my submission, that we now have enough information, enough intelligence, and I hope, enough intellectual and moral courage to say that this ghastly proposition is founded on a lie. And to celebrate that fact. And I invite you to join me in doing so. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.